right, everybody. Welcome back to a brand new interview on Four Guys in a Comic. Uh, tonight with me, this is Matt, obviously, and then tonight I have uh, Mike as well. And with us tonight, we have a very special guest. Um, if you grew up in the 80s and 90s and watched cartoons, um, you've seen this man's work. Uh, we have none other than Mr. Buzz Dixon. Buzz, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me on board. Yeah, thank you for joining us. Um, your work is definitely, I think all of us, that anybody that's probably listening to this podcast has probably seen numerous amounts of your work and maybe not even realized that it was your work at the time. But um, that, that being said, uh, you're a writer, um, primarily in cartoons. You've done some comic books as well. Um, how did you get started in that? Well, um, if you're talking about professionally, I got started in 1978 when I got uh, discharged from the Army. Um, if you're talking about how I got interested in it, that goes all the way back, of course, to the 1960s. In fact, earlier than that, the 1950s, I was uh, a Donald Duck fan when I was a kid growing up, read all the Donald Duck and Scrooge McDuck comics, um, got into uh, – interested in dinosaurs, and that led me into monster movies. Monster movies led me into science fiction. In the 60s, I was very much active in science fiction fandom. And from there, I wanted to you know, become professionally involved in it, become a writer. And I tried writing stories as a teenager and whatnot, got nowhere with it. I was drafted in 1972 towards the end of the Vietnam War. I didn't go to Vietnam, but I was I was you know, among the last people that they, they scooped up for that. And when I was discharged in 1978, I had applied for and been accepted into USC's film school. But uh, the film school didn't start until October, and I was discharged in February. So I took my wife and our you know young daughter at that time. We moved out to Southern California to Los Angeles and I thought, well, I'll get a job at one of the studios during the summer, like a driver or in the mailroom or something like that, just to get familiar with the system before I go to school in the fall. And I started knocking on doors. I started at Universal and just basically worked my way down. And I'm not exaggerating if I say I sent in resumes, applications, paid visits to about 100 different studios, production companies. And I had worked my way all the way down to Filmation Studios. And uh, to make a very long story short, uh, they were on hiatus. And uh, Arthur Nadell, who was their live action producer, he did like Jason of Star Command and um, Arc 2 and things like that. Uh, Arthur was had nothing to do. He was sitting in his office, bored out of his mind. And uh, the receptionist Asked, do you want to you want to talk to a guy about a job? You know, and he said, yeah, sure, send him back. When I got back there, we began talking. I told him something about my background. I had been a um, information specialist, which is a fancy way of saying newspaper reporter, for the U.S. Army. I had edited a Post newspaper while I was in the Army, and Arthur, um, you know, asked me a bit more about my career, and I told him I had written some short stories, and he said he would like to see them week later, I came back with, you know, some of my stories to show him. And he casually mentioned they were developing an idea for a show and they were having problems coming up with story ideas. And he couldn't ask me to come up with any story ideas because then he would have to pay me. But if I, <laughs> of my own free will, chose to come up with some story ideas, he would, um, you know, he'd be happy to look at them. Well, again, you don't have to hit me over the head twice, so I go back, I write up a bunch of story ideas. I bring them in a week later, and what I didn't know was this. Um, Lou Scheimer, who was one of the producers there, Lou and Norm Prescott were the uh, two main guys at Filmation. Lou was, on Hawaii, uh, was in Hawaii on vacation, and Arthur read my short stories, and sent them FedEx to Lou. And you have to imagine in 1978, sending something FedEx to Hawaii, that was a real big deal, okay? So he sent the stuff FedEx to Lou in Hawaii, and Lou read my short stories while he was in Hawaii. Um, when Lou came back, the premises for the series that I had written were sitting on his desk, 
And Lou said to Arthur, uh, I don't know who we should hire, if we should hire the guy that wrote the short stories or the guy that wrote the premises. And Arthur said, they're the same guy. And Lou said, get him. And so make a very long story short, I ended up pretty quickly on um, staff at Filmation Studios. So by the time October rolled around, I'm thinking, well, you know, I'm actually making, you know, fairly good money here. I can I can put off going to school for a year or so and um, you know, I'll pick up my college education later. I'll just while I'm while I'm here, while I'm making some money, I'll just make some money. Well, one thing led to another and I never ended up going to USC. I uh, went from one job to the next and uh, ended up having a career writing animation. That's really awesome. And for those that don't know, um, you've done a lot um, over the years. But probably I think the ones that people would know best um, are, well, G.I. Joe. Yes. Um, G.I. Joe is probably like the ultimate. Um, mm-hmm. Thundar the Barbarian. Um, for mm-hmm. those that grew up in the you know early 80s, you got Thundar. Um, but I think probably the biggest ones, and I mean, you did some other ones in the ladies that I really enjoyed, like Teen Wolf, the cartoon series. Um, you know, I'm I love that. I'm gonna be very one. honest with you. I'm gonna be very honest with you. I have no memory of Teen Wolf whatsoever. <laughs> I don't know. I, I cannot explain this. I, I I was just talking to somebody about it the other day. Uh, I'm looking at this. I'm going. I'm drawing a complete blank. I have no memory of working on the show. You know, I, apparently I did, but um, it's it just it came and it went. <laughs> and I'm not saying that in a derogatory sense. I'm just saying there was like so much stuff, and there were other things occupying my mind and attention at the time. Seems like you kind of had, aside from GI Joe, you also did like the GI Joe movie, uh, My Little mm-hmm. Pony movie. Um, right. You, we had worked on those, and then uh, there also seems to be a lot of uh, just kind of one or two episode stints on a, on a lot of these cartoons. Well, um, it, it played out in the, the different, the difference between the way that Saturday morning animation was done and, um, syndicated animation was done. Saturday mornings were generally 13 episodes. They would, they would order 13. And if the show was successful, they'd bring it back for another year they may order only six or eight new episodes. And then if it, if it came back for a third year, they might only order two or three, very little to to refresh the pot. I mean, because they figured, well, well, the kids will just keep watching the old stuff again and again. So if you were working in Saturday morning animation, um, you know, you were, you were going to all the studios, you were getting the production Bibles on all the shows, you were pitching to all of them. And there just weren't that many berths available. And as a rule of thumb, once a studio found somebody that they thought was reliable, and by reliable, I mean they knew you would turn in a certain level quality story on time, well, then they would come back to you again and again because they they needed that. Um, But it, it meant that, you know, there would be maybe 100, 200 at the most, uh, episodes or segments on all three networks for an entire year. And in fact, I'd say 200 would probably be an exaggeration. There was maybe 100 episodes, new episodes at peak production on Saturday morning. Well, when syndication came along, they were doing 13 weeks of five shows a week, you know, a daily show. So you end up with that's what 65, you know, more. Yeah. Yeah. 65 episodes. And you just needed a lot of bodies. You needed a lot Mm -hmm. of people to come in and just produce stuff. And it became fairly easy during the syndication boom for writers to, to sell scripts and you could sell one here, one there. You were, you were connected. You were all part of the animation industry. You, you, you know, exchanged information with one another and the demands were so great for just material that it, it wasn't difficult to place something on almost every show that was, was in existence. I did one Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle. I did one Brave Star. Um, Loved Brave Star. I, I, um, I have seen my episode of Brave Star, and I haven't watched any others for this reason. Filmation was the most economical studio 
in the United States, and they reused animation and stock shots and everything else again and again and again. Typically, when you were writing a script, they would hand you a great big thick notebook of um, already, you know, stock animation for that show. And they oh, tell wow. you, go through, go through here and pull out scenes and write, write uh, the scenes around the existing animation. The oh, wow. Four, yeah, the last four episodes of Fat Albert, there was no new animation. It was all old animation that they recycled and redubbed. So it that was wasn't just, deja vu that I was having as a child. I had really seen these before. Oh, you absolutely <laughs> had seen it before. You had absolutely seen it before. And they would they would use stuff again and again. Um, I, one of the funny things that happened when I was at Filmation, they were um, there was a series called Tarzan and the Super Seven that it was edited down versions of the Tarzan show that they had just run on CBS. Plus a few new segments that uh, we wrote, uh, like um, Web Woman, Super Stretch, and Micro Woman, uh, Manta and Moray, things like that. And they they had gone to the expense of doing rotoscoping, which is where you get actors to make the movements, and then you trace over and you add, you cr- you turn them into animated characters after that. So they had done a uh, they had done a lot of action stuff of like Tarzan you know swinging on vines and Tarzan doing a judo throw he would uh, throw somebody over his shoulder and you got to remember in the seventies they were really antsy about violence on Saturday morning television so they do this shot of Tarzan throwing a guy over his shoulder and they animate it one season as uh, let's say an Aztec warrior. And it goes by CBS's censors without any problem. The next season, it's a, a Roman gladiator. So they change the costume. They just use the same animation. They just change the costume, and it's uh, you know Tarzan throwing a, a Roman gladiator over his shoulder. This time, it gets called for you know being too violent. And they're going, "What are you talking about? This is the exact same animation that you approved of last year." And well, you know. Times change, even just a matter of uh, months. So I, I haven't watched any other Brave Stars because I know there. If I do, I will see how much of my episode was reused animation. <laughs> <laughs> I am going. I you know I want to have a fond memory of that. I like that episode, so yeah. I'm not going to watch any others. So I guess because you said that it was just you know. They just you were just hired to write. So, I mean, did you find that difficult to like come onto a show and and only write like one or two episodes of these characters and then move on to Garbage Pail Kids or whatever it was that was next and write you know one or like you never really got a chance, I guess, to to get to know the characters, so to speak. It was sort of just hey, here's the next cartoon. Like, was that bothersome at all before you got to GI Joe and whatnot? Or well, um, it it. Actually, G.I. Joe and Transformers was a good crucible for this because what we did on those shows, because I was a staff writer for Sunbow, and you know, you had you had to get a script a day out of the office. And and somebody had to have a script, a completed script at the end of the day that was gonna go to the studio to be animated. And I'm I'm not exaggerating when I say a scripted day because if you've got to turn in 65 episodes in a 13 week period, you got to crank that stuff out. And so, the advantage of Transformers and GI Joe was we had this this vast number of characters, and and virtually any story you wanted to tell, you could find a character that would be the perfect voice for that story, and you could just you know focus on that character and and do a story based on it. It sharpened your abilities to find a story, find a conflict, something that's going on with existing characters that are presented to you. And and yeah, it, it would have been nice uh, with Brave Star, with Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, uh, with Batman, if, if you know, I could have been on staff, I could have seen the ebb and flow and, and growth of these. Um, I, I did a script for Batman that never got animated. They bought it, but they never animated it, in which I introduced a female character. Because at the very – I have to explain, at the very beginning of Batman the Animated Series production, they had not yet decided they were only going to do existing villains. And so half the villains were going to be 
uh, DC villains, and the other half were going to be characters that were created. And between this, between that moment where they ordered the script from me and the moment I turned it in, uh, management had a change of heart, and they decided we are only going to do uh, existing characters at this point. So I turned in a script that had a character who ended up completely without knowing what Paul Dini was doing. Okay, I have to emphasize that. I had no idea what Paul was doing regarding Harley Quinn. But there were certain overlaps with what uh, ended up with Harley Quinn. And if the edict had come down a week or two later, mine might have gone into production and, and you know, we might have had another female character, another female villain, you know, running around in the, in the Batman universe. As it was... Paul got Harley Quinn in because she was a supporting character to an existing villain, and they didn't they didn't look as closely at the supporting characters. And then she proved to be such a hit that uh, you know she became a regular on the series at that point. Wow, yeah, it it sounds like there's um, quite a few things in that that industry where it's sort of. You know, they, they try to be economical, but it's also, you know, not as uh, efficient as it would be if, I don't know, things were more consistent or uh, I'm sure you've got plenty of stories like that. where Oh, yeah. Yeah. Through. Yeah. Well, you you your situation is you're you're trying to please several masters simultaneously. I mean, first off, you should be trying to please your own standards. You should be saying to yourself, I want to do the best possible story I can do. And if it's. If it's a story for, you know, if, it, if it's My Little Pony, okay, I'm going to do the best My Little Pony I can possibly do. Um, then you have the edicts that are coming from the production company. And depending upon the, the specific circumstances, uh, if you're at Filmation, it's, you know, do it as inexpensively as you can. You know, put, put as much of the story into the dialogue as possible, animate as little as possible, and when we have to animate... You know, use as many um, stock shots as you possibly can. Um, a company like Sunbow, we started out, Sunbow would give us a list and say, we want these characters and these vehicles in the next episode. And that lasted about two weeks, maybe three weeks. And then they realized, you know, these guys are going to use everything. They're, they are just sucking up every possible tool that there is in the chest and they're they're turning it into stories so we don't have to tell them what stories what characters and vehicles to use they're just going to go for it then beyond that you had other other considerations uh you know networks they're operating they've got their own set of values and whatnot and they'll they'll come to you and say well we can't do this because it might possibly offend somebody you know so okay fine and you have to work a way around their concern. Um, likewise, uh, in the in the syndication market, we we would have situations where, um, like Jim, Jim the toy flopped. I mean, it just it did not take off at all. But the show was a huge hit, and the mm -hmm. moment the show was the the show became such a huge hit that it went into a second season, even though there was no toy to accompany it. Because they could they could get other commercials on the gem um, program because so many kids were watching it. It was valuable to the the local stations because it was so popular. Uh, in humanoids, uh, they canceled in humanoids about halfway through production on that series, and and they weren't. It wasn't popular enough as a show to continue past that first season. And basically, Sunbow said to us, look, you know, as, as long as you don't do anything that gets anybody arrested, go nuts. Do whatever you want to in the show. We don't care anymore. <laughs> oh, really? You know, and uh, I think we ended up having one of our characters run for president and get elected. I mean, we just we just pull the stops out at that point. It's like, well, there's nothing there's nothing to hold us back. There's no. You know, nobody is going to say anything about it. I, I did a story for Inhumanoids where we've got these uh, zombified teenagers going through town chanting, kill, kill, kill. And and the voice actor, whoa, can we do this? Is this, you know, is, uh, yeah, go ahead. They don't care. 
Being so, being on filmation, did you ever get to work on Masters of the Universe? Because I was a big Motu fan growing up. No, I didn't work on Masters of the Universe, and um, Masters of the Universe is <clears throat> one of the things that brought about the big syndication boom. It came about. Uh, I have to backtrack to uh, Smurfs, which I didn't work on either, but it will. It will. Um, illustrate the story here when i was working in animation in uh saturday morning animation the fcc rule was that there could not be any shows based on a toy if a toy company came afterwards and said we want to do a toy based on the show once the show was on the air then the fcc would say okay but you couldn't have a pre-existing toy and then do a show about it and the um, people that um, wanted to had the Smurf toys, they were trying to, you know, promote them as much as they could because before the Smurf show, <clears throat> the Smurf shows, the Smurf toys were being sold as like little tchotchkes and key rings and stuff like that. They were already all over the country, but nobody knew what they were. They were just these little blue figures. And Hanna-Barbera wanted to do a Smurf show, and the FCC said, no, you, you can't. It's a toy. And Hanna-Barbera said, no, 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 it's, it's a Belgian comic book. And they whipped out the original Belgian comic book, which had never been imported to the U.S., never been translated into English. But they said, hey, it's it's a comic book. It's, it's a pre-existing property. And <clears throat> the FCC said, well, okay, in that case, we'll let you do the Smurfs. So they do – the Smurf show, and it's a huge hit because between the the toy marketing and the the show itself, it just generates a huge amount of interest. Well, then Strawberry Shortcake comes along, and Strawberry Shortcake's uh, their producers said, "Well, you know, Strawberry Shortcake was a series of greeting cards, and that's printed material, and you know, printed material is not a toy." And the FCC goes, "Well, yeah, you're right. It was a." Greeting cards first, that's printed material, okay. So they approved um, Strawberry Shortcake. At that point, Mattel had um, <clears throat> had uh, He-Man in the works, and they went to DC Comics and they said, we, we will pay you to do a comic book called He-Man in the Masters of the Universe. And they did this three-issue miniseries that has – no relationship to the show, to the actual toy line or anything like that. It just established the general look of the characters and their names. But it was, again, quote, a pre-existing property. And then when the toys came out, it was the fiction was, oh, well, it's based on the comic book. Of course, it's not it's not a toy that was designed in advance. At that point, um, Hasbro was going around getting um, they got Marvel to do the uh, Transformer and G.I. Joe comic books. And then from that, they did animated cartoons advertising the comic books, but really to test out how well the characters would work in animation. And by that point, the FCC basically said, yeah, sure, whatever, go ahead. And they, <laughs> they um, stopped. You found all the loopholes, fine. <laughs> you found all the loopholes, fine. And so at that point, um, they just gave up on trying to keep toy-based properties out. And when they did that, every toy company in the world started funding um, animated shows. And mm-hmm. um, it fairly quickly choked the market. I'd say in like about five years time, they oversaturated the market. Um, but it was, it was, um, it was quite a ride <laughs> for those five years. I can imagine. Um, I just recently saw that documentary on Netflix, uh, the toys that made us. And, uh, there was, they had a He-Man, uh, Masters of the Universe episode. They were kind of talking about that stuff. So, it's pretty interesting. So going forward, then you had GI Joe. It's probably one of the one of the, I would say the most well known work that you have done. You were on mm-hmm. it for quite a long time. You did a lot. Um, mm-hmm. How did that kind of come about, and how did you 
because prior to that, like I said, a lot of it was kind of like one and two episodes. How were you able to kind of get your foot in the door and say, look, I'm staying. I'm, I'm doing G.I. Joe. Well, I was actually I was actually brought in because of my military experience. Um, oh, I have okay. to backtrack a bit. I was working at um, Ruby Spears with Steve Gerber and uh, Flint Dilly and a, and a bunch of other people who ended up at Sunbow. Uh, we were all at Ruby Spears. We were working on Thundar the Barbarian and various other shows they did. <clears throat> and Steve and I became good friends while we were working there. And for a variety of reasons, um, the the staff at uh, Ruby Spears just drifted off one year. They just they lost like sixty percent of the staff writers. And they went to various projects. Uh, Some of us freelanced. I did an episode of um, Dungeons and Dragons, the one with the skeletal skeletal warrior in it. Yep. Um, You know, we picked up odd gigs here and there. And Steve was hired by uh, Sunbow to story edit G.I. Joe. And he sent a few scripts over to me to take a look at. And these were scripts, if I remember correctly, that had already been commissioned and accepted before he was hired as a story editor. So he sent the scripts over to me, and and he knew I had seen the two miniseries that had been aired up to that point. And he said, take a look at this and just give me your feedback. And the feedback I gave him was that – it wasn't a very plausible show. I mean, it wasn't very realistic uh, from a military point of view. And, I mean, I'm not talking about the the stuff like, you know, the jets swooping down and cutting tanks in half like they did in the original miniseries. But I was talking, they were, there were scenes where sergeants were barking orders, at, you know, colonels and things like this. And they, they just didn't behave the way that a military unit would behave. There wasn't um, as... A, the term I used was a patina of realism. There was no patina of realism to it. And I pointed out some of this stuff to Flint, not Flint, excuse me, to Steve. And uh, Steve related to Sunbow and said, look, Buzz was in the Army for six years. He's He's got a, an eye and an ear for this. He's a good writer. Let's bring him on as a staff writer, and, and we can just basically use his expertise to make sure that the show doesn't go too far afield. So I was brought on primarily because I had, um, you know, been in the army for six years, and I was they were they were relying on my experience and judgment and whatnot to try to keep the show from becoming uh, too far off course. Something similar happened to me with the uh, Marvel comic book NFL Super Pro, because again, uh, Steve Gerber. I was talking with Steve and you know asking him if he knew about any you know comic. Uh, uh, work that was opening up at that time. And he says, well, this guy, Bob Budiansky at Marvel is, uh, you know, might be looking. So I give Bob a call and, um, I was speaking to him and he said, yeah, I really don't have anything open. He says, uh, unless you know anything about football. And I said, well, you know, I played football for four years in high school. And he said, you did. He says, don't, don't go anywhere. And well, okay, fine. So, <laughs> 15 minutes later, my phone rings and he says, uh, would you like to write, you know, some scripts for NFL Super Pro? And I said, sure. And he said, it turns out you're the only guy that anybody at Marvel knows who ever played organized football. <laughs> 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 so I got that gig simply because I had played football in high school. That's awesome. Now that um, that NFL Super Pro wasn't your first comic work, uh, correct? No, no, it wasn't. My first comic work, I tell people, I, I my very first comic was work was uh, was drawn by Jack Kirby, and it's been downhill ever since. Um, <laughs> Steve launched one of the first, not the very first, but one of the first um, creator-owned comics. Uh, he did a thing called Destroyer Duck, and and the mm-hmm. backstory to this is he was in a lawsuit with Marvel Comics over who owned the rights to Howard the Duck. And to fund his lawsuit, he, he created Destroyer Duck, and he got um, uh, Jack Kirby to to illustrate it. He had uh, a number of people. I mean, I think um, Sergio Aragonis and Mark Evaniers, um 
Gru the Wanderer, uh, the first Gru stories were in um, uh, Destroyer Duck. And Steve had done two or three issues by that point. And I'm, I'm not speaking ill of Steve because he would be among the first people to admit this. Steve frequently had deadline problems. He just he was such a perfectionist that he couldn't let something go. And it would take him a while to get it to the point where he felt it was good enough to, to show people. And between the work that he was doing at Ruby Spears and the comic, he was starting to fall behind. And so he, he asked me, he said, would you like to do a two-page scene, uh, a fight scene between these two characters? He says, all I need is just something to give Jack to keep Jack busy until I get the rest of the script done. And he says, all, all you have to do is, is start it this way and end it this way so it fits into the rest of the story. And, and basically, whatever you want to do, you can do in the middle. So my first comics work was a two-page fight scene between Destroyer Lawyer, who was Destroyer Duck's lawyer, obviously, and a, a bad guy. And since it was a lawyer character, all the uh, sound effects were legal terms. So... <laughs> You know, he's like smacking people with, you know, legal terms left and right. And, you know, Jack Kirby drew it and it, uh, Alfredo Acala inked it. And uh, I think it was Gordon Kent colored it. And son of a gun, that was my my introduction to comics. Yeah, and if, uh, you've, you've done a few since then. I had my own uh, publishing company for a while in the early, uh, early 2000s. We were doing... Uh, graphic novels for the uh, Christian teen market. We had a character called Serenity Harper, and we did 10 graphic novels based on her. Um, and we were successful. We, we, we were actually among the best-selling uh, uh, Christian titles at that time. And unfortunately, our contract got sold from the original publisher to uh, another publisher, and the second publisher just drew an arbitrary line in the sand and said, you know, if you're not selling X number of copies uh, by this date, we're cutting, you know, and they said this to all the people that were, you know, being published by them. But if you're not selling X number of copies by a certain date, we're just cutting you off. And we tried telling them, no, 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 you've got this whole e-publishing thing coming along. You've, and you've got to give graphic novels a chance to build the audience says this this will be a big hit you just have to nurture it and now now you didn't sell enough and they they cut us off so uh, that character is eventually going to come back I've, I've in fact I have been just in the last week working on some new material for her but um, um, you know it's it's gonna it's taken a while to get the stuff put together and get it to the point where I can um, uh, you know, have something, have something new and fresh, and not just a rehashing of what we've already done. Right, and and that would be, I guess, would you plan on making another, or continuing the publishing uh, company, or, or maybe I will, I will, I'll be honest with you, um, I I am, I have to be very circumspect in in what I describe. Um, I would not do it the way I did it before. Mm -hmm. Okay. There, there were choices I made that uh, it would have been better to have made a different choice. And right now, I'm looking just at uh, prose publishing because I can I can self-publish through Amazon, you know, right. virtually for free. Um, and I've got I've got a um, I have a GI Joe novel out. I have a uh, upcoming. Um, a young adult adventure story coming out. I've got several books planned that will be coming out over the next few years. And the Serenity stories will be prose stories, but they will be continuations of that character. If someone were to come to me and say, wow, I've, I've got a big wad of cash that uh, is burning a hole in my pocket, and I would like to do this as a graphic novel series, I'll be happy to have that conversation. But right now, I'm not out looking for it because, uh, frankly, the experience I had with the the last publisher who, you know, just would not listen to the changes that were facing their industry. I'm not. I'm no longer. I'm in a stage of my life. I'm no longer inclined to jump through other people's hoops. That's what it right. boils down to. 
this is why I haven't done much animation writing in quite a while. It's mm -hmm. because if if I if I were to do animation writing, I would have to go around, take the meetings, go in, you know, read the Bibles, try to figure out stories and whatnot. And and at that point, I, I'm saying to myself, the amount of effort it would take to write a a half hour animated show is the same amount of effort I could put into writing a book. So why should I? Why should I put a lot of effort into somebody else's project and and run the risk that they aren't going to be interested in it when I can, you know, put the same amount of work into something that I can own? Yeah. Yeah, with no uh, no corporate control over the the results. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. There's yeah, there's just so many avenues now especially for someone trying to get any comic out there. I mean, you could just yeah. put it out digitally on a website and, you know, the eventually yeah. things pick up from there. Um, oh I, yeah, I did notice you haven't stopped writing though, because you do post blogs quite frequently on your website. Oh yeah, yeah, yes, exactly. A lot of what I do is is commentary on either writing or on uh, you know political or social situations. But I also have put up short stories. I've put up poetry. Um, I, I have things that I call fictoids, which are not quite poems, not quite short stories. Mm -hmm. They're kind of experiments in form. And basically, you know, I'll write something like this. I'll, I'll uh, you know, send it out a few times to the short story markets. And if it doesn't sell in like, you know, five tries, okay, fine. Then it goes online. You know, I'll put it up myself and then eventually I'll collect it into an anthology that will be available as an ebook. Oh, great. Just like the uh, Lost Classic G.I. Joe episode. Yeah, yeah. The, what had happened there was, um, going back to G.I. Joe, the second season, Steve moved on, and I became the story editor for the second season. And I was, uh, you know, I was thinking, well, what what do I really want to do with this show now, now that I'm, I'm in a position to kind of guide it and shape it? And I thought, we really haven't explained the origins of Cobra. So I came up with this idea that was going to be called The Most Dangerous Man in the World. And it was basically about the philosopher who had come up with the basic operating philosophy of Cobra. And then Cobra Commander had, you know, garbled it up and whatnot. And the original philosopher had been thrown into a Cobra prison because they didn't want him undermining Cobra Commander. And the guy escapes, and Cobra's looking for him, and the Joes, the Joes don't know who he is. They only know that if Cobra wants him, they have to get him first. And so the episode was going to be this big chase to see who gets him first. The Joes get him first, and when they get him, they realize, well, this guy's really a colossal pain in the butt. And when he escapes from the Joes, the Joes basically go, you know what? Screw it. Let him go. You know, if he's out there, he's doing nothing but causing trouble for Cobra. Uh, that's fine by us. So that was what I pitched, and I I presented this to Sunbow, and uh, they passed it up to um, Hasbro, and Hasbro's people, you know, got back and said, "Oh yeah, this is great. You, you're authorized to do it. Go ahead. Just um, make sure you've got, um, you know, you work the the Cobra Emperor in there." And I said, "The Cobra who?" And they said, "The Cobra Emperor." And I said, "Well, who's the Cobra Emperor?" And he said, "He's the Supreme Commander of Cobra." I said, no, he's not. I said, we've, we've just done an entire season where we've emphasized that Cobra Commander is the supreme emperor, the supreme leader of Cobra. I said, if you had told us, you know, drop a few hints, there might be somebody above him. We could have easily done that. We would have been happy to do that. But, uh, you know, we just can't suddenly introduce a brand new leader without explaining it. And they go, OK, all right, we'll, we'll come up with some ideas to how to explain where he comes from. So, uh, and this is advice that I give to all writers. Um, if a producer or publisher says, come up with a couple of ideas, don't. Come up with the one idea you really want to do. Because if they could come up with ideas, they would. They wouldn't be hiring you. So you come up with the one idea you like and you present it to them. So the idea that I wanted to do was that Cobra uh, Emperor – as he was called at that time, um, was going to be created from the, the DNA of all of these great you know, military leaders in the past. 
my thought being that Cobra was very dissatisfied with Cobra Commander's leadership. He, had, he you know, was constantly failing. So they decided to create the perfect leader who would then lead Cobra and into victory. Um, but because Hasbro had said come up with a couple of ideas, I came up with an, an alternate, which was there was a um, super secret organization, you know, civilization somewhere that was secretly funding Cobra and keeping, you know, Cobra in operation. So I, I submit both ideas. And I hear back from Hasbro, and they said, well, we like it. Go ahead and do it. And I said, do which one? And they said, both of them. Mm-hmm. So that put the kibosh to the idea about the philosopher, because once once we introduce the idea that there is a vaster secret organization that's really behind Cobra, then there's no room in the story for a, a uh, Cobra philosopher, as it was. Um from that, first we did the miniseries Arise, Serpentor, Arise, and then after that we did um, the G.I. Joe movie. And Ron Friedman is credited with the G.I. Joe movie. He did do the first draft of it, but they threw out virtually everything he did in the first draft. I think they kept uh, Nemesis Enforcer, and that was it. And they, they had me do a second draft, a, you know, a brand new, completely different story. And it was the one that, you know, I had suggested about the secret um, organization. Ron is a tremendous writer. I mean, he had written the original uh, Joe miniseries and whatnot. He's just a tremendous, really, really good writer. Uh, but he, by that point, the show had moved in a different direction from what he had envisioned when he had written the very first miniseries. And I don't necessarily think he was moving in the same direction that, that Hasbro wanted it to move in. Mm-hmm. So he is credited because the, the contract, he had a really good agent. The contract guaranteed him sole screenwriting credit. But I, I actually wrote the story for the uh, G.I. Joe movie. Yeah, and we're we're talking for anyone listening. We're talking about the one in the '80s, not the uh, Channing Tatum. Oh no, not any, yeah, not the Channing <laughs> no. Tatum stuff. Just yeah, to, no, no, not any of the modern stuff. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I yeah. I have to explain because I've had people ask me this, and this this kind of reflects back on the Brave Star thing too. I've had people say, "Well, what do you think about this thing that they did with GI Joe, or that thing that they did with Transformers, or something like that?" And I have to say, you know, when I'm finished with a project. I put it down and I walk away from it. I don't second guess it. I don't look at it and go, oh, oh, you know, they shouldn't have done that. They should have done this or, oh, I wish we had thought of that. I I recognize I did my stint on it. My thing is is going to be it'll always be there. And whatever anybody does afterwards, that's their thing. That's what they did, their contribution to the mythos. And, and Larry Hama is like this because, um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I, I was talking with Larry a couple of years ago at a convention. Uh, Larry wouldn't watch any of the G.I. Joe animated shows, and we conversely weren't reading any of the G.I. Joe comics because both the Sunbow office um, in Hollywood and Larry in New York, we both recognize we are doing different threads, different stories. We're using the same characters, but we're we're heading in different directions. And it would be madness to try to sync up the two things because they're they're different formats, they're different uh they're different audiences, different media. He could he could do stuff in a comic book that a comic book audience would accept because the comic books were a slightly older audience. We were doing things that we we had to soft pedal a bit because you know we're doing them for a, a slightly younger audience. So I I have not seen any of the GI Joe live action movies. I haven't seen any of the Transformer movies. Um, I I did work on uh, a revamp of GI Joe in the 1990s that uh, didn't didn't take off as well as they had hoped it would. I was I was happy with my work on it, but I also recognized, uh, you know, it it just didn't click with the audiences at that time. Mm-hmm. It it 
didn't have the same impact that the original G.I. Joe had. Yeah, that, that sort of leads into um, my, my sort of last question is, you know, in a, mm-hmm. in a world where Bob's Burgers and Rick and Morty and uh, whatever else is being animated right now sort of, I don't want to say rule the airwaves, but it seems like for the yeah. most part, cartoons now are, you know, comedy. They're comedy cartoons. And you'll have something yeah. like Voltron on Netflix, which is sort of just out of nowhere, or, mm-hmm. or the Thundercats reboot. Um, do you think there's, you know, place for a G.I. Joe reboot today, or is that age sort of gone? Uh, you know, that's, a, that's an excellent question, because um, not to get too philosophical about this, um, I look at what we did on G.I. Joe when we did it, and I look at what happened in subsequent years. And the youngsters who were watching G.I. Joe in the mid-'80s they were just of age to enlist in the military after 9-11. And I've, I have had more than one person tell me, you know, I, I joined the Army or I joined the Navy because, you know, I'd seen G.I. Joe and I wanted to be part of that. And that actually kind of weighs on me because I, I recognize, you know, holy cow, people have put themselves in harm's way based on something I wrote. And... It, it makes me realize, you know, you, you can't and shouldn't be too flippant about what it is, whatever it is that you've created, because you have no idea how it is going to affect other people. I don't know if G.I. Joe versus Cobra um, could play the same way it played when we did it in the 1980s. Um, in the 1980s, we didn't have Al-Qaeda. I mean, it, it existed, but I mean, it, it, virtually nobody had heard of it. Mm-hmm. You, you would have had to have been a, a big political buff. And surprise, surprise, uh, you know, most of the guys that were working on G.I. Joe were political buffs. <laughs> but that's, that's a separate thing. But I mean, you would have had to have been um, a pretty well-informed average person to even, even have been aware that al-Qaeda existed before 9-11. Um, or even before the very first attack on the towers, because you remember during the Clinton administration, somebody drove a truck full of explosives into the basement and tried to bring it down. And they they didn't succeed in bringing it down. They caused a fire, but they didn't do any significant damage, and, and which is why they attacked with airplanes the next time. Right. Um, I don't know if that could play now, because we have – seen over the last 16 years, we have seen how that played out in real life, how how going after a terrorist organization um, in reality played out. And it's, it ain't the same fun, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I hope you follow. I'm not being flippant yeah. here, but... Um, I'm going to use an odd word, but I hope you'll you'll gather what I'm, I'm going for. It doesn't have the same innocence. It would be too right. self-aware, and I think that might have been what what worked against the um, uh, the second Joe project that I was involved in. I was very much consciously trying to base it on on the Tom Clancy view of the world, and I I had flipped the the um, the stakes in it the joes were now the hunted the joes were the ones that were considered to be the outsiders the threats and they were they knew what the real threat was they were trying to address it but the problem was they couldn't they couldn't come out and get the open support from uh, from the rest of the world that they had enjoyed in the first series and you know who knows maybe maybe it was too complex an idea for the for the audience maybe it was an idea that the audience you know they just couldn't embrace i i everybody who worked on that show gave it 100% it just didn't connect and that sometimes happens you know you sometimes have an idea and it's just not the time for that idea it's either too early or too late it's kind of a sad time, but then again, it's nice to be able to reflect back and look at yeah 
look at the history of these and, and go back and relive, especially with DVD and Blu-ray and digital service and everything yeah. else, being able to kind of go back and relive all of this is, is also oh, yeah. really yeah. cherishing. So we just want to thank you for coming on tonight. We truly, truly, truly appreciate it. I learned a lot. I did not realize that Filmation recycled everything. Like, that is crazy to me. Oh, my so, God. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, you have been a pleasure to talk to buzz oh, i greatly you. appreciate it um you said you do cons do you have any upcoming cons by chance or do you still do those um i i will probably be at uh, san diego this year i usually am and i will be at alpha MegaCon in september i think it's september 19th i i i may be misquoting but you know just look up alpha omega con and you'll find out uh, and there, there are other cons that I will probably be at during the year because frequently, you know, they they wait until two or three months out before, you know, finalizing uh, their their uh, guest lists, and you know, they, they some of them have yet to officially ask me. Yeah, yeah. Well, hopefully, I'm in the Midwest, so hopefully you come to a con out here at some point. I would love to be able to sit down and talk with you some more. Um, oh, but... well, I was at I was at um, a Wichita Transformer Con. Uh, oh, were you really? Back. Yeah, yeah. Nice. So if they ever want me back, I'll be happy to go. I had a great time. Awesome. It's a, yeah, it was I'm... a wonderful con, really nice con, yeah. Yeah, I'm not that far. I'm about five hours from Wichita, so I'm not too far. Yeah. I'll have to keep that in mind. I didn't even know there was a I'll have to check that out. I'm going to have to make sure it's still going on. But, uh, yeah, so thank you very much, though. We truly oh, appreciate it. You've been a blessing to talk to. Yeah. On, uh, Mike, Michael, he's a, one of our other hosts that was supposed oh, to join yeah. us tonight. He's going to be so upset yeah. about this. <laughs> I, feel, I feel bad for him. <laughs> yeah, okay. it's going to be great. But, right. anyways, thank you very much. You're welcome. And yeah. if, if anybody's interested, we mentioned the blog. It is dot. Buzz Dixon, B-U-Z-Z-D-I-X-O-N, all one word, dot com. All right, fantastic. There you guys go. And Buzz, thank you for being on. And until next week, everybody, thank you for tuning in and stay tuned for next week's Four Guys in a Comic. Thank you. Thank you.